0: Jesus was on to something in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about beams and logs and specks. You remember Matthew 7 1 through 5 Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Hear the word of the Lord. I've developed a theory that we all come out of the womb particularly adept at picking out the splinters in other people's eyes. Isn't that true? We all pick out little splinters in other people's eyes and miss the great logs in our own eyes why is it easier to identify the faults of others and miss our own faults? Well, in a word, and real simply, it's pride, and it's a sinful heart. It's a penchant for transgressing. We all tend to have an outside view of ourselves, and... We minimize a view of how God views sin before His own holiness. Could it be that all of us have misappraised how obnoxious sin is to our holy God? We tend all to view God's judgment as worthy for others, even appropriate but not for ourselves. I must warn you ahead of time as we come to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, (laughs) that Paul's going to run after our hearts this morning in that view. Come there with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Romans 2, 1 through 10. Deep streams of, hey, wait a minute, Eric, I'm pretty good. I'm better than most. As I compare myself to others, I'm above the curve. I'm better than average. Deep streams of that lie in the notions of the American psyche. We measure ourselves by ourselves. But the passage before us this morning confronts us with doses of truth about us and self-evident truths about the righteousness of God the kind that makes us acceptable before God, the kind that we are offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kind that makes us acceptable on the great day when the dead small and great shall stand before our holy God and everything will be known about the end. Now, let me tell you about the argument of the book of Romans chapter 1 verse 1 this is about God's gospel God's good news his righteousness is available to sinful humanity as a free gift in receiving Christ into our lives oh the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ after the introduction which closes in verse 17 he talks about what we characterized last week as that wicked world out there. You know, he looks out the window of the world and says, look how they're living in indulgence. Isn't that awful? In fact, as you read it, you know, it's PG. Some would suggest rated R in places. You know, look, look, look out there. Isn't that awful? Then he moves to a second point he's going to make, and it's right here. Do you realize there are some people who look out into cultural life and they find it obnoxious? They say to themselves, that isn't right. I don't like that. We ought not be living like that, but we are. And when they say that, they express something about what they value. And they also say something about how they're looking at their own heart. It's possible for us to think we're doing pretty good, and even be put off by an indulgent culture and be Mr. I'm okay and I'm pretty good. Paul's speaking to that group here. Then you come in verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, but if you call yourself a Jew, and so he's going to talk to the Jewish crowd. And you remember, after God called Abraham to be his, and the, his offspring, to be the nation through which he'd reveal himself to the earth, Why the Jewish nation got really haughty about who they were before God. In fact, one time they told Jesus, are you kidding? You're you're, you're telling us this? We have Abraham as our father. We're we're Jewish people. We don't need this stuff of repentance and that. And so he's going to go after the Jewish people. He's already gone after the indulgent people. That's where we've been, Romans 1, 24 to 32. Now he goes after the people that consider themselves pretty good. Salt-of-the-earth people. I'm, you know, comparing myself to other people. I'm I'm pretty decent. A good guy. We use that phrase. He's he's a good guy. She's a good gal. He's going to run after that in these verses this morning that are before us. Romans 2, 1 to 10. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Hear the word of the Lord. I want to go three different directions this morning. First, I want to tell you what you already know, and that is the Bible is a book about God, and this passage says some very important things about God, and I'm glad we're together to rehearse them. We understand what we know about God from his word. Secondly, I want to ask, what does unchurched Harry and Mary, and tragically, even some gospel Christians, miss when they don't see sin before a holy God as it actually is? There's three things we miss. I want to note those from this passage And finally, like a catheter would go up into our heart with a cardiologist and discern our heart, I want to evaluate our hearts from this passage by looking at a couple of issues with you. So that's our plan of attack. First, what does the Bible say about who God is and what he is like? And I ask you as it unfolds, is this your view of God? Is this what you think he is like? The source for our thoughts are very interesting to me. Some people have thoughts about God and they're all cockeyed. And I'd say, well, where'd you ever get that? Well, I, I heard it on TV or, you know, right next to the towel rack in the bathroom at the airport. I, I read it on a little thing, you know. Let's get what we understand about God from his word. The Bible is a book about God revealed to us. Two ideas here. Number one, and I ask you, is this your view of God? God is rich in kindness. God is rich in kindness. Look at verse four. Or do you presume on, here it is, the riches of his kindness? Now, along the way, God has allowed Andy and I to be around a couple people that the worldly wise would say, ah, that person is rich. And they had means. And what's interesting to me is not their means, but what's often interesting to me is um, how did they get their means? They're rich in what? Uh, I, I met what was said to be the richest man in a state, and I inquired, and it's like, you know, how'd you get here? Well, he had a global timber business and had, uh, sold a lot of met- metallurgical coal through the years. And, uh, the fascinating time together, you'd say he was rich in timber and rich in coal, or he was rich in trucking, or he was rich in chemicals, uh, he was rich in this, or she was rich in that, or, you know, she was at, in Seattle at Microsoft when it got started and, and just left and carved out her own company, and now look at her. She's, she's rich in the digital world. Well, God is rich. What's he rich in? Get this. He's rich, just loaded with kindness. Don't you want a God who's loaded with kindness? Now, I ask you this morning, is that your view of God? And are we allowing the word of God to shape our view of God? Talk to some people about God. Oh, he's, you know, a cosmic killjoy. He's got his hammer cocked. He's ready to knock me in the head. If I have one lick of joy, why do I want to know the God of the Bible? You are missing the fact that he is rich in kindness. If you want to be rich in something, be rich in a virtue, and he is rich in kindness. And what he's saying is you are blowing by the riches of his kindness when you're not paying any attention to it and you're missing something extraordinary. By the way, if you're in a hard spot or your heart feels like an elephant is sitting on it and you can hardly breathe, I want you to know that God is rich in kindness and the Lord is near. And if you'll let him in, he'll pour that kindness all over the bruising wound that you have and what you're facing. He's rich in kindness. Secondly, God is fair in his judgment. Look at verse 11. Here's a declarative statement about God. This is what we are to understand about God. For God shows no partiality. Now in chapter 1, We run across those six words that arrest the attention of our hearts. For the wrath of God is revealed. Wow. By the way, we have already talked about the fact that we want a God who responds to evil in such a way. That's God's response to evil. Do you get upset at evil? I do. God does too. And his wrath. Is revealed right now, presently. Remember, in he just allows us to go headlong into our desired indulgence. Ties us up in a knot. We reap what we sow. That's tragic and hard. The way of a transgressor is hard. He lets us go. That's an expression of his wrath. But there's also a future wrath that he talks about here, a coming wrath. Look at verse 5. Verse 6, he will render, verse 6, verse 5, because of your heart and impenetive heart, you are storing up for the future wrath that is coming. But you need to understand that the judgment of God is just and right and impartial. There were calls this week from a congressperson who was asking for a justice on the Supreme Court to be impeached. Why? The accusation was the person is partial in their judgment. They cannot be impartial, it was suggested, so they ought to be taken down. They ought to be impeached, taken off, because they are partial. I played baseball for seven years when I was growing up, from five to twelve years old of age. Uh, it was so much fun! My dad and I spent a lot of time together. He was the assistant coach for my—I uh, forgot the name of the league. Is it Pony League? Uh, five-year-olds. We we won it all. I got a little trophy about this big, you know. Uh, the Red Sox—they were the first. And uh, dad was the assistant coach. And then we went on up to the minor leagues, into the major leagues, into the senior leagues. When I got to the major league, they had an all-star team. It was a part of that accredited little league association that eventually goes to Williamsport or wherever that is in Pennsylvania, or if that's the right town, I don't know. But anyway, um, well, I made the major league all-star team, played second base. And then I went to the senior league. So I was getting a year older, and there was three different ages. I think it was uh, 13. 13, 14, and 15-year-olds, so I was 13, and uh, got into the league, and um, maybe I played eight years, because it was in the second year in that league, I was picked to try out for the all-star team. I thought, this is going to be fantastic. I made the all-star team a major league, now I've been picked to try out, oh, this is great. So I went off to the all-star team, practice tryouts, and we were all out there, passing the ball and going through things, and I met a guy, and uh, he was a coach. And I knew he was kind of an official for the league, and so they would tapped him. That didn't surprise me. And uh, we got out for some drills for the infield, and I noticed that uh, the coach's son was in the drills for the infield and realized that he was trying out for second base. Now, some of you are just a little bit ahead in this story, I can tell. Well, I got whacked. He picked his son. I was a year older, of course, in my judgment. Better, stronger, faster, better arm, better for the team. No matter what, it didn't matter what I perceived myself. The coach picked his son. And he, he played on the all-star team at second base. That was it. That was sayonara for me for Little League. As soon as that season was over, it was a throw away the cleats and uh, get back to the basketball court all summer rather than, uh, you know, play that old silly baseball game. <laughs> Even as I'm standing before you this morning, I still believe it was an objective judgment, impartial on my part. That uh, he was partial to his son, and that's why I got cut and his son made the team. By the way, that's embittering. When somebody treats you in an impartial way, that's, 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 that's not good. I want you to know God will never, ever, ever treat you that way. He is just, and he is impartial, and he is holy, and he is right altogether. Is that your view of God? That he is kind. Is that your view of God? That he is righteously impartial. We need to allow the word of God to frame our understanding of God. Now, secondly, what does a pretty good person miss about reality? What do we miss? By the way, we stumble across the second rendition of you have no excuse. That shows up in chapter 2 and verse 1. Now he's already said this to all of humanity in chapter 1 and verse 20. So they are without excuse. God has put his, the indelible imprint of his existence in everything that he has created. His eternal power and nature are clearly seen. Now we suppress that and don't respond to that but it makes us all to a person, all now over 7 billion of us without an excuse before a God who is impartial in his judgment. So you get to chapter 2 and verse 1, here's another group that are without excuse. Now, chapter 1 describes the indulgences that we talked about last week, 24 to 32 and if we're not careful, we can be those people who view themselves, hey, I'm pretty good, better than average. Isn't that awful? Isn't that awful what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 1? That's horrible. I don't want any part of that. At the selfsame time, you can look at, out the window at the way our culture is behaving and find it obnoxious and say, that's not right but at the self-same time not be resting in the righteous beauty of Jesus and be all smug and self-righteous and think you're better than average and you're way okay. And here's how Paul's opening salvo goes. You, if that's you, are without excuse before a God who is holy. Excuses. I remember I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in a program with a guy. And um, we were involved in this modular program. So you did all this work before the class, and you had to turn it all in as the class started. Then you were involved in an intensive. And then after the class, you had to do all this other work. Well, he reported on the first day and announced that he had none of his homework. By the way, there was no excuse to make the class work. You had to get all your homework. He said he he didn't have any of his homework. And then the professor inquired, why don't you have your homework? And he said, well, I lost it. He said, well, how did you lose your homework? He said, I was involved in a plane crash at sea, and my backpack and my computer went down. And what the, they were landing in Australia and actually landed. They missed the runway and landed right in the sea, and it destroyed everything, and everybody was saved. But the professor said, yeah, you got an excuse. Okay, I'll give you that one. You got an excuse plane crash, live through a plane crash, lose your assets, you got an excuse. I want you to know there is zero, there is no category or circumstance that will put us instead to stand before God on the great day and have him say to us, okay, you had an excuse. No, not once. Twice, he points out, you have no excuse. Now, Unchurched Harry and Mary and tragically a few followers of Jesus and gospel Christian settings who have not renewed their mind with the truth of the word of God and the gospel they look at themselves and they say you know what I'm pretty good I read Romans 1 that's not me I'm pretty decent I go to work I know the people to avoid I know those who are treating others badly, and I'm not like that, and, you know, I don't beat my wife, and, you know, I'll feed the neighbor's dog if they go on vacation. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. The pretty good person misses three things about reality. Number one, they miss the inconsistency of their judgment in light of the practice of their lives. They look at Romans 1 and they say, Boy, there's none of that in my heart. When actually those seeds are there in their heart. They're too proud to recognize that they need grace also. Verse 1. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you can look at Romans 1 and you can say, But that's awful. And Paul's saying, Look at your heart. Look at your own heart. You, the judge, practice the very same things in thought, word or deed. Did you ever notice how a hypocrite is the last person to see it? They're dumbstruck. What? Me? Are you kidding me? Everybody else in the world can see it. What? Me? No. We tend to always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Now the proof of our living is in the nature of our life. Look at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. We're going to come back and talk about this in a moment. But when he uses the term works, he's talking about our lives, the sum of the decisions and the results of the decisions that we have made. One decision at a time, we go into the future. And hypocrisy breeds blind spots. So we walk around with this overinflated view of ourselves. So after Paul has written Romans 1, 24 to 32, and most of the self-righteous people reading along say, I'll tell you what, they're awful. Paul opens up chapter 2 by saying, hey, you have no excuse. And is it not true you need grace to and the very seeds of the fruit in Romans chapter 1 lie in your own heart as well because you too are a son of Adam or a daughter of Adam and have the same stuff going on. The second thing that's missed by the pretty good person is they mistake God's kind for bearing patience for a shield against his judgment. Look at verses 3 and 4. It's interesting. Do you suppose, O man you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? For these people uh, who view themselves pretty good, better than average, they say, you know, I haven't been struck by lightning. God's never appeared at the base of my bed and said, will you tell me what in the world are you doing? I mean, I, I'm, I must be doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Notice verse 3. The word that's used is suppose. Do you suppose? Suppose. Do you understand, do I understand that it's possible to suppose things about ourselves and about God that are not true? Do you suppose? Of course they supposed. And what they supposed was not right. Then he uses another word, presume. Do you presume? Is presumption a part of the strategy of our life and relatedness to God at all? Are we assuming anything from God? A friend of mine was hired by a golf country club. They had hired Jack Nicklaus to be their architect and put in the course. It's a nice course. The LPGA was there once. And um, my friend was hired, and he was in charge of development, developing members. So he started the job with certain assumptions about how he could behave, which meant all of his friends beat him up for, hey, dude, we want to play on the golf course, and so... Uh, he started a parade of his friends there, and I was involved in the parade. I think I played twice. Along the way, the manager of the club began to observe what was going on. And he pulled him in, and he said, hey, will you please tell me what was going on? And to which he replied something like, hey, I assumed that when I came here that I had the right and the privilege to invite whoever I wanted here to play and just expose them to the club. Now, he was disabused of that wrong assumption that he had in that meeting immediately by the manager who told him, don't do that. Whatever that is, that's not a part of this gig. He had assumed that it was. He supposed that that was true. He presumed that he could be involved in such a way. Now, here's what Paul is asking us are we presuming upon God's kindness? Is he kind? Or is he holy and kind? Or is he holy and kind and just and impartial and righteous in his judgment to pour out wrath on the deserving? And that's you and that's me. And it's also the glory of Good Friday because the hell that we deserved, the just guilt and punishment for our sin fell on Jesus at the cross. And he took it down so far as to resolve it in saying, it is finished. The debt has been paid. My hell was resolved on Good Friday so that in receiving Jesus Christ as Savior, I could have God's heaven and have life and hope and peace and forgiveness and rest in a great Savior. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Has there ever been a time in your own spiritual journey where you've recognized God, just like that, Jay read the passage, Luke 18. The man who said, God, be merciful to me. Remember, mercy keeps us from what we do deserve. We deserve hell. God offers us his mercy in Jesus and keeps us from hell and forgives us and brings us into his family. God's good news is extraordinary. In your own spiritual journey, have you ever received Jesus Christ as your Savior? recognize you're a sinner before a God who is holy. Recognize that he is holy and kind not to have judged you heretofore. And he offers in his son the perfections of his son for our account if we would just believe in Jesus. Has God brought you here this morning to give your life to Christ? To begin with him be reconciled to God. The third thing that the pretty good, unchurched Harry and Mary conceives of is they skirt the call to repentance in God's gospel. Remember how Jesus, Mark, begins Mark's gospel? You get to Mark 15. There's a few verses of introduction. Jesus comes on the scene and says, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The call to turn away from our sin, turn away from our indulgence, turn into a life of righteousness, the life we've always wanted that God has called us to. The person who judges himself by others and the curve and thinks I'm better than average, they skirt the call to repentance in God's gospel. Notice what Brings us in and snaps our penchant for rebellion. Did you notice what it was? What is it that brings a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to repent and turn around and come to Jesus? I'll tell you what it is, Eric. Tell them about hell. Get the furnace hot enough and they'll they'll think about it. Give them some fire and brimstone. Lay it on them. Give them hell, Eric. If you give them enough hell, they'll repent. Ask the word of God. You guys are afraid of it. Give them more hell. What does the Apostle Paul say from the Word of God turns a man's heart in repentance? It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Running away from our Lord in high school, I pushed every boundary that my dad and God both had. Before grace ran me down. I broke curfew and began to develop a habit. My dad had strict habits, and he made them known, and I was to keep them. 12 o'clock Friday night, I was to be home and in bed. 12 o'clock Saturday night, I was to be home and in bed. Well, I started driving and taking off, and I noticed that, you know, I wouldn't die if I got in at 5 after 12. And um, nobody got to bed. If I was, got out of bed, if I was quiet enough, and it was 10 after 12, or 15 after 12. And so I became a habit, and I was careful, but I started to care less about that standard for our home. One night I came out of a house, hopped in the car sucker wouldn't start. And I was already past curfew when I sat in the cab trying to start the car. And I kept grinding on it, and I thought, I could grind all night. This thing ain't going to start. So I had to find a phone. That was the day nobody had phones. You know, I had to go find a phone, call my dad. My dad is just such a wonderful person. God gave me wonderful parents. But anyway, you know, he just worked hard, and then his sleep was valuable because he had just worn himself out doing whatever he's doing. So he's home in bed. You know, by 1230, you know, he had already had a half a night's sleep, Ed. You know, by then, he was tired from work, and... uh, I woke him up. His response to my breaking the boundary cured me from breaking the boundary. Because I'm standing over there sweating bullets. I know eventually he's going to pull in the driveway, roll up next to my car. I'm going to get in. And I was just expecting the riot act all the way home. Dad rolled in. Get in, Eric. Let's go home. Let's get back in bed. Warm greeting, got in. He knew I had violated that curfew. I knew I had violated that curfew. We sat there in the cab and went home. He treated me with such grace and kindness that night, even though I had violated the family rule. And When I laid in bed, I'm sure he went right back to sleep. I didn't. Because it was His kindness that began to run down my rebel heart. Now this is not about have no standards at home and just be kind. It's not about a parenting strategy. It's about how God moves the human heart to repentance. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Now look, look across the page. Verse three. Verse four, or do you presume the, on the riches of his kindness? Notice he's rich in other things too, forbearance. Are you glad God is forbearing? I am. Are you glad God is patient? God is patient and present with you this morning, waiting on your heart, moving on your heart, not knowing that the God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, if you take us, uh, 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 the pen and you circle the term repentance in the next verse but because of your hard and impenitent heart that's one of those six dollar words nobody knows what that is what it is it's the word repentance with a prefix a which means no so what he says is God's kindness is meant to lead your heart my heart to repentance But because of your hard and, here's the word, no repentance heart, that characterizes many of our hearts. It's a no repentance heart. So the question this morning is, do you have a kindness has moved my heart to respond to the Lord? Or do you have a no repentance heart? Which heart do you have? And it's a binary choice. You have one or the other, a heart sensitive to the holiness of God or one not. What is it for you? I want to tell you that God is not out to get you. But God is out to save us. And he's pursuing us. Don't ever forget that he is kind. Ever been moved by the kindness of God? Why not this morning? Why not this morning? Well, finally, quickly, three assertions to go home thinking about how does this passage evaluate our hearts? Number one, an authentic embrace of the gospel leads to the work of a gospel life. Now, there's a way of reading it wrongly that sounds like, go do good and you will have eternal life. Go do bad and you'll go to hell. Now, that's not the gospel. That's merit. Remember the old Boy Scout? You started out a tenderfoot. You had that merit sash. You get to Eagle Scout. You you just keep getting awards because you keep getting better and better and better and better as a scout. The gospel doesn't work that way. The gospel says, your sash and my sash is black. And there's no hope that it would ever be anything but black. But God who is impartial is also kind and loving and offers his son. And with his son, We get a white sash. It's not ours. It's his. It's his righteousness given to us that makes us acceptable. So what he's talking about in works is the work of a gospel life. We're all painting by numbers every day, making decisions, and those decisions are being chained together to forge our reputation and the body of the work of our life. And we will someday present the body of the work of our life, and we make our decisions, and then our decisions make us. We will present the body of our work to the Lord. That will be our work, and it will be judged. Who was it for? What motives drove it? Romans 4 5 says, Now to the one who, not now to the one who works. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. The gospel is a gift, not something that's earned or deserved. An authentic embrace of the gospel leads to the work of a gospel life. Secondly, presumption is the everyday business of the pretty good person. The easiest thing in the world to do is presume upon the goodness of God. This is a general attitude of unchurched Harry and Mary. We're fine. God is good. Mounts, you just said God is kind, so I'm way okay with God because that's who he is. I had a friend in the 08 mortgage crisis who decided through the counsel of some others, hey, this malstorm of mortgages, they're, they're delaying mortgages and delaying payments. I, I man, I just, I'll not pay mine for a while because it's all a mess and everybody knows it's a mess and I'm not going to pay it for a while. And, and he sincerely believed that that was the right track until the bank knocked on the door and put a ticket on the house and he was out. The bank took the house. It didn't matter what he'd been told or what he believed, he was out because he had supposed and presumed things that were not true. Don't rely on pretty goodness to make you to be found acceptable. Finally, repentance is the everyday business of a faithful life following Jesus. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Luther's first thesis in the 95 that started the Reformation is this. I love it. When our Lord and Master Jesus said repent, he willed, that the entire life of believers was to be one of repentance. You talk to some people, hey, have you repented? Oh, yeah, I did that once. What? No, repentance is a lifestyle. It's a perpetual turn. It's like, in that sense, a, 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 a spiral staircase where we, we just keep repenting. Because like peeling an onion, you think, man, I'm going to get this bad. Oh, wait, there's, a, there's another one. There's another one. Haven't you realized that about your own heart? You know, I, at one point I thought, man, you're really getting holy. You got through Cedarville College and now you're through one year of seminary. You're really, you, boy, you're really moving on in holiness. And I got married. Just a rude awakening to my own sin. What a sinful, selfish heart. Oh, my. This is one of the glories of marriage. If we'll let it, it's, it has a sanctifying glory in our life. We need to repent. Remember John the Baptist's baptism line? Some self-righteous people got in line. They were waiting to be baptized. John went back there and he didn't mince any words. What in the world are you doing in the line? Bring forth a life that looks like repentance. Get out of line and repent. Then get back in line. Then you can get baptized. He just said it like it was. What line do you need to be in this morning? Let me ask you this. Is God bringing in his kindness, to your attention, some need to repent, to change, to reshape your thinking about the course of behavior that you're involved in, toward your wife, toward your friend, toward your work associate, toward your neighbor, some indulgent habit he is asking you today to discard. In 1901, the Saturday Evening Post offered $10,000 to the person who would submit the one sentence that had the most substance to it, G.K. Chesterton won the 10,000 bucks. Here's the sentence. I finally realized the problem with the world is me. That's what the first 10 verses of Romans 2 bring us to. I got a text this morning from a brother who said this. I can testify to this. No man loves Jesus Christ more than when he sees his own depravity and then rejoices in such a great salvation. Thanks be to God for his kindness and what he has given us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we're all going to pray with this song. And I pray that its lyrics would surface what you want us to be attentive to in our own heart. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Help us be responsive to your great kindness in Jesus Christ. Jay, I'm going to ask us, to pray and sing while seated to respond if as we are praying and using these lyrics, praying with our eyes open watching these lyrics God brings to your attention your need to repent in a symbol of prayer and responsiveness, I want you to stand up you don't need to say anything more than God be merciful to me a sinner, I need to face that Give me grace and then be seated. Let's respond to him in that way as we close this morning. If God has brought something to your attention that you need to face in a symbol of prayer and a responsive heart, you stand up and then you be seated. Let's sing. so much for being here today a church full of people not unlike this morning who are responsive to God's holiness and his kindness and calling us to repent is a powerful tool in God's hand to affect change and have influence for Christ's sake in the world can't help but think of how pleased God is at your responsive heart this morning let's be found throwing ourselves on his mercy if we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to keep on cleansing us from unrighteousness. What a glory to know Jesus Christ and be forgiven. Amen? And to live for him to which you are sent in this good week that is before us. Thanks for being here.